Imagine the Southern Baptist Convention's Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission hosting an MLK event. For those of you who don't know the history of the SBC, well, this is a big deal. Hello, this is Todd Littleton with Pathological, the podcast for the pastor-theologian, with a podcast that explores the intersection of life, faith, and thinking theologically, or as we used to say in the old days, theological reflection. Today on the podcast, I'm glad to have my friend Alan Cross back, back in April, uh, near the 50th anniversary of Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination the Gospel Coalition, and the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention held an event called MLK 50. It w- there was a diverse group of speakers. There were um, uh, interesting conversations. We'll have a link. I believe the talks are available online. I was not able to attend, but my friend Alan Cross, who works for the Evangelical Immigration Table, drove up and was there. I wanted to have a conversation with Alan, and while he was on the road doing his normal job, we had a conversation as he drove along the beach about his take on that event, what it might mean. And I have to say that in light of some of the recent uh, SPC2 events, and if you're unaware of that, uh, maybe we'll have a podcast where we talk about uh, some events that have recently occurred where some women have come forward to talk about the ways a particular version uh, of uh, gender roles has uh, gotten itself worked out in, well, some not-so-gospel-oriented ways. Uh, At any rate, I think there's some implications. Uh, Webb wrote a little book um, where he outlined the parallel trajectories of slavery and women in the Scriptures. And let's just say that uh, uh, Southern Baptists are a little slow on the uptake on that trajectory, and the truth be told, both of them. So um, Al and I had this conversation, and uh, well, I hope you'll listen, and then share. And then, of course, the call to action would be uh, find some conversation partners that you're willing to listen to, not instruct, hear from rather than dictate how things ought to be, and see if together we can't overcome some of those systemic uh, racial uh, trends, patterns, habits, ideologies that actually are undermined by the gospel's good news in Jesus Christ. So uh, share the podcast, give us a rating review, and here's my conversation with Alan Cross. Hello, this is Todd Littleton with Pathological. Today on the podcast, I'm glad to have my friend Alan Cross back on for a conversation uh, and his uh, about his reflections on the recent MLK 50 event uh, that he attended in Memphis. So, Alan, good to have you on today. Hey, Todd. Thanks for having me on. Glad to be here with you. Yeah, so uh, not everyone may be terribly familiar with, with what the event was, and so the 50 obviously is a uh, commemoration of the uh, 50th anniversary of the assassination of Martin Luther King. So so uh, tell us a little bit about the event, like who hosted it and, and that sort of thing. Sure. 
Yeah, it was uh, sponsored by the ERLC, the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of Southern Baptist, and the Gospel Coalition, and they they came together to uh, to um, invite um, speakers from across the evangelical landscape, primarily. Um, of all different races and backgrounds to come. And it was called uh, Gospel Reflections from the Mountaintop, which was uh, the title of Dr. King's last sermon that he preached the night before his, associate, uh, before his assassination, um, where he uh, was giving a perspective saying, I've been to the mountaintop and, I, and I've seen basically what he thought was going to happen in America. And the next day you know, he was killed. So the idea is that from Memphis, he, he went there for the sanitation workers strike to support them and what they were going through and and that he was killed and so it was a it was an opportunity to to reflect on the civil rights movement um that many the formal aspect of the civil rights movement ended really upon his death because everything kind of uh fractured after that and uh and also his life and and the things that he called us to it, it wasn't necessarily um just a commemoration or celebration of, of him per se it was more of reflecting on the things that he said and and taught and uh the things that we can learn from and draw from. So it was, it was a pretty powerful couple of days. Now, before we kind of get some specific kind of takeaways you had, it, it'd be important for those who are listening. And uh, of course I'm going to link to a, a prior conversation we've had uh, about your book. And, um, and then we had another conversation. So we've got a couple in the bag, but um, mainly that uh, to play up your interest, that um, this wasn't strictly for you a, a recreational uh, trip. It wasn't uh, f- necessarily a fact-finding sort of thing, but you have a keen interest in this particular subject. Right. I uh, pastored in Montgomery, Alabama for 16 years, um, 10 years as senior pastor there. And, and uh, during that time period, uh, really became interested in, in, in Dr. King and the civil rights movement and, you know, what came before feeling I'm a Baptist pastor in Montgomery, Alabama. I need to learn about what happened here. So just uh, spent years doing research and talking to people, interviewing people who were a part of the Montgomery bus boycott and knew Dr. King and marched with him and worked with him. And, and I learned a lot. You know, these are people at the time um, were in their seventies and eighties and, and uh, you know, at the end of their life. And so um, just being in Montgomery um, uh, at that time period and learning and then pastoring there and, uh, you know, trying to work off of what, um, you know, some of the foundation that was there. And, and uh, so I, I wrote a book um, out of, um, out of that study, just kind of exploring racism and Southern evangelicalism and how, uh, Southern white evangelicalism was subverted to Jim Crow and, and uh, before that to, to slavery, you know, to race-based slavery and how it went along with it and asking the question of why, how did that happen? Um, you know, in a city full of churches, why was there violence? Why was there opposition to, uh, to integration and Dr. King and things like that? So um, wrote, you know, wrote the book is called When Heaven and Earth Collide, Racism, Southern Evangelicals, The Better Way of Jesus. And then left my church about two and a half years ago um, to begin work on, on behalf of immigrants and refugees um, with the Evangelical Immigration Table um, across the southeast. And so we had a we had a booth there, um, an EIT booth, and I was also asked to come speak uh, at the conference in one of the breakout sessions on uh, Ministry of the Vulnerable Immigrants and Refugees, along with my friend Rondell Trevino, who is uh, in Memphis. And so, yeah, I was obviously um, listening and observing, but was also one of the speakers and, and, and um, participated um, in it on that level as well. So. Yeah, so um, the um, acute interest 
was, uh, I would suspect, not only because you'd been invited to participate and, and have a booth at EIT there, but but you really were interested to see what have we learned in 50 years. In other words, right. what, have, what has uh, or have the evangelical uh, wing of the church learned uh, as it's been largely dominated by uh, Anglo-Americans? And so uh, tell us, you know, what, we, what are your first kind of um, takeaways that, that – what did you get? Uh, what were some of your general senses, rather, um, as to what maybe we've learned or taken away? Yeah. Well, as as, as far as the participants there, you know, I mean, ERLC and Gospel Coalition are, you know, two pretty mainstream, um, uh, you know, aspects of of evangelicalism, and uh, um, yeah, so you know, these weren't fringe groups, you know, that were coming together right. um, to discuss this. And so that was, you know, of interest. And, you know, what I saw was, was just some really deep reflection. It, it wasn't just a bunch of white people standing up there and, you know, talking about their perspective. I mean, it was a very diverse group and, and there were some really hard things said, um, you know, by the speakers and there were things that needed to be said. Uh, when I, you know, 13 or 15 years ago when I first started researching this, I started working on my book and especially I was writing pretty heavily from 2008 to 2012 or so on this. Um, I would, I would talk to people. I'd call evangelical leaders and ask them, what do you think went wrong? You know, why do you think white evangelicals were on the wrong side of, of, uh, of what happened in slavery and then Jim Crow? And there wasn't much of an answer. I mean, it was, well, you know, that's what happened. And, you know, there's not a lot to say about it. We're past that now. And, you know, why are you talking about this? Why are you interested in this? That, that, would, that would be what I would get. Um, and people saying everything was pretty much fine, which I knew wasn't the case. Um, so to hear these things being talked about now in 2018, of course, since 2000, really 14, I would, I would, you know, we had Trayvon Martin and that would happen there. But really, since Michael Brown and Ferguson in 2014 is when really things began to move to the forefront and people began to realize, well, we haven't made the progress that we thought we'd had and, um, and things are really a struggle. And so, you know, that is the conversation people are starting to have now, which is very different than what we were saying 10 years ago. Um, 10 years ago, we were just, well, everything's fine. And anybody who brings this up is kind of a problem. You know, they're just initiating negativity or something. So what, so probably the main takeaway um, that I was impressed with was that there was really, an attempt to have an honest conversation and also to look back and say, you know, white evangelicalism really was flawed and wrong in some pretty, pretty significant ways, not just, well, they just didn't know any better. It was actually no, they were complicit with an evil system and trying to get at why that was and what we can do about it now, I think was kind of the theme of the conference. Um, so tell, so tell me, I mean, I, I don't want to, um, you know, nitpick how we talk about this, but um, you, you said, you know, have a conversation at an event that really is front loaded with speakers. Mm-hmm. So were there occasions for actual dialogue, um, you know, give and take, uh, pushback question, query, that sort of thing, because mm-hmm. otherwise really we've got a few representative talking heads and that, that really albeit good in itself, uh, isn't always indicative of the feelings of the crowd who would be in attendance. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm I'm not always the best person to ask for something like that because when I go to a conference, I end up talking to people all over the place in the hallways and and everything, and, and um, I, I get a sense of that. But but yeah, you know, it, it um uh, some of the, of the breakouts I know had Q and A, and then I was in some sessions where. Where, where there was the ability to kind of, you know, question the speakers. They had panel discussions. So, so there was conversations happening on stage Good. That, you, that you could listen. And, and the speakers were pushing back on each other. There was some confrontation happening, you know, from, Good. you know, from the stage where people were being challenged. And, and uh, you know, so it, it definitely, and then speakers, um, you know, even mainstay speakers would, would say, would say things. And then you would have somebody else come that I don't, I don't say they would respond to it, but you definitely got the feeling that it was back and forth going on um, more so than usual. You know, it wasn't a, it wasn't a uniform presentation coming from the conference organizers that were saying, okay, this is how it is. You know, it was a pretty diverse lineup. So. Well, and that, and that's certainly good in itself. So um, yeah. Uh, uh, obviously that indicates that not everybody sees this issue the same, but at the same time, did you get a sense from, uh, the way the event was put together that uh, even in the pushback that might have been represented in whether it's, uh, you know, on stage dialogue or your conversations in the, you know, uh, event hallways um, or from speaker to speaker that that we weren't battling some of the uh, same things that you had identified more than 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually... You know, for me as a writer, as a pastor and writer and blogger and speaker and all that, you know, when when I wrote the book and it published in February 2014, you know, I, I went through this. I was excited about it and I, I felt like it was pretty revolutionary. I had not, you know, I didn't get my stuff from reading some other Christian book and then just regurgitating it. It was like original research and I had not seen anybody else saying what I was saying. And over the past several years, and especially this conference, and this is kind of weird to say when you're a writer and speaker, preacher, whatever. Um, but I was hearing people saying really for the first time in a conference setting, I was hearing people say the things that I had been, that I had learned and studied and researched and put forward and which was really hard stuff. And, um, and that's not saying, Oh, I was first or whatever. Cause I'm, I'm just listening to people, you know, I'm, I, it, and I'm just trying to put stuff together from people who were on the ground and who lived through it and did it, you know, but as for me, I was just personally encouraged, um, that I felt like we were for the first time really beginning to have some hard discussions about why this happened, what it means, what it still means today, how we still aren't together, you know? So, um, I mean, there were some things that I felt could have gone further. I, I heard some, some white pastors saying, you know, well, we still need to kind of be cognizant that everybody isn't with us and people aren't really embracing this. And, you know, and then, so you have to kind of go slow in your churches and things like that. And, you know, I, I am, in one setting, it was kind of a private setting, so I'm not going to say who who it was. They asked us not to do that, sure. um, but I stood up and questioned the speaker and pushed back and said, "Well, how long do we have to wait? You know, um, we, you know, we've been waiting a long time. It's 50 years since King's death, and you know, what do you mean we have to go slow with people? You know, um, so anyway, those were you know those were some of the things. But overall, I, I, I do think that there was a really good faith attempt to to get at the hard stuff and. Um, you know, I did sense that. Well, I'm going to get a, a couple of those, but I, I, at this particular point, j- just in the in, in sort of the, the general sense that we're talking, and again, this is um, I, I'm I'm not I'm not interested, frankly, in you know what leader said what, but mm-hmm. I, I am interested that um, uh, we remind those listening today that in that context, 
we are still talking about a particular branch of, mm-hmm. of the Christian tree, largely white evangelicals as the probably the dominant uh, group attending, and that when you remark that uh, you're pressing for, you know, how how long do we go slow or how long does it take? That there are other other branches of the Christian tree that are have have been uh, much more aggressive mm-hmm. to say that um, any time is too long, and if you're still tarrying with this, you should get over it. Mm-hmm. So I don't want us to give anybody uh, the sense that. Um, either one of us are necessarily in the uh, take it slow camp. I think you've right. already, you know, indicated that. But uh, th- the main reason for that is, is that we don't want to present the fact that an event was happening in, Ven- uh, in Memphis, sponsored by Southern Baptists and the Gospel Coalition, as if it were a ubiquitous event that rep- was representative of all Christen- Christianity. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Because uh, otherwise, we don't pull out the nuance that that uh, actually references your book. That no, this is the reason that it's so hard, and mm-hmm. we get the pushback to go slow because this is such uh, ingrained into mm-hmm. Southern white evangelical theology that even though we are fifty years past the assassination, more than that, past the origins of the movement that we still have trouble convincing people that this is really a significant issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I make this case in my book, but, you know, also, you know, since I've written it, I think it's become even more true uh, or at least more obviously true that the reason why this is such a struggle for us is because it isn't even just about race. It's not even just about, well, let's get over racism. Let's not be racist anymore. You know, I think most people would say, okay, well, I don't need to be overtly racist. I agree. You know, let's not wear white hoods and robes and, you know, let's not keep black people out of our churches and things like that. But what happens is that we do end up trying to promote, protect and defend our way of life. And any, anything that we sense to be a threat to that, even someone who's different or might have a different approach than we have, or might come at things in a different way, we, we tend to, to pull back and defend ourselves. And lots of times because of our history um, and because of the way that society is structured and economics and neighborhoods and real estate, all these different things, and even our churches, the way our churches are traditionally aligned, that, that protecting our way of life and our preferences ends up manifesting racially. Um, to a lot of people, it looks like continuing racism. To the people doing it, they say, well, I'm not, I'm not racist. I just want things to be the way I want them to be, you know? And, um, and if that means that I'm with people, you know, more like myself, then that's not my fault, you know? And, um, you know, so that's what often happens. And then, you know, it, it, it all goes kind of cattywampus from there. So. Right. And, and I think that not to, not to take a detour, but, but that is always going to be the rupturous nature of the gospel uh, in, mm-hmm. in that, we're always going to promote, uh, protect, and defend our way of life, uh, even if that means keeping Jesus at bay. So, I mean, that's just a normal human resistance to the good news. Um, Sure. But but in in its particulars, when we fail to see the way that that's been instantiated in systems and structures, then it almost seems like a willful ignorance. Um, Mm. And when there's such a push, it's it's a, an overall lack of self-awareness. 
Mm-hmm. So one of the reasons I wanted to have a conversation with you and now want to pry at, at some of the issues that you think, one, yeah. there were some progress made at and yeah. others where you think we need to go is, is that um, I think it's been almost two years ago, I heard Dr. Barbara Holmes, who at the time was uh, president of um, a seminary in Minneapolis. And um, I've told this story over and again, and I probably will, but we were having some conversations. She was conveying her experiences during the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. And there was a fellow sitting next to me, a little bit older than me. And, and, and we were all taken by the stories that she was telling. And he said, well, you know, could I get you to come to my church and tell my folks what you're telling us today? And her response was, you need to tell your people. So in part, um, while we naturally would think that the maybe the best spokespeople for prodding us in a more faithful direction in the way of Jesus would be those who lived that experience, um, Barbara was saying it's your responsibility to correct your ills. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and so having a conversation with you is not an avoidance of, say, me having a conversation with my friend Adam Clark, which I have done. Uh, on this very subject, uh, but it is really our way of getting my way of getting together, saying, okay, well, I'm fairly confident that the majority of the, those listening to my podcast are probably Anglo uh, white males, and, and I, I think most are Christian, if not all, and so this becomes another vehicle to say, okay, um, if, if she's right, and I think she is, we need to tell our people so that they can be self-aware of their ills and do something about them. That's, that's why I thought this would be a good conversation. And so now I'm ready to kind of listen to you tell us. So um, identify one, two, three issues that you think that um, at the event were largely, uh, as much as possible in an event like that, agreed upon that show progress. Hmm. Um. I want to just kind of speak back to to something that you said right before you went into this, um, you know, last part, because I, because I think it can kind of set the stage because it also speaks to a lot of the reaction that we're seeing to the conference and to this effort. So, you know, the whole idea of promote, protect and defend your way of life just being part of of the human experience. And I totally agree with that. It's called sin and Jesus addresses saying, if you seek to save your life, you'll lose it. You know, so you have to lay down your life for me in the gospel. And so that's just, you know, that's part of coming to Christ. But, you know, what tends to happen is that we, we do that and then we kind of protect ourselves and then we, you know, and then we say, I'm not a racist, you know, like we're very quick to make sure that we defend ourselves. And by whatever opinion we have, whatever position we take, whatever we do, we really want to make sure that we know people, we, you know, that people know we aren't a racist. Then we get pretty frustrated. And I say we, I'm just talking about a lot of white evangelicals. Um, you know, if, if someone, if we think someone thinks that we're being a racist because we're just acting out on our preferences, then it's easy to get frustrated or, or, um, or defensive. And, you know, it's almost though that in this situation, whenever people immediately run to but I'm not a racist or I'm not a racist or how dare you think that I'm a racist. It almost is kind of a tell sometimes um, for, well, that is, you are trying to protect yourself. Yes. You know, you're, yes. you're trying to get your way. You're trying to do all of the same things that were done before perhaps and, and, and making sure that you have your preferences, but you don't want anybody to think that you're, that, you know, that you're a racist. So why, why do you feel like you're going to have to say that? You know, why do you have to defend yourself that way? 
was anybody actually accusing you of that to begin with, you know? And so, um, you know, that's just one thing that I, I think comes up a lot in this, that people, that white people get frustrated once this issue starts getting close to their stuff and then they don't want to have the conversation anymore. You know, whereas I think the Christian response is, well, how can I listen to you? What are you actually saying? Where is this pain coming from? What can I do to minister to you or to help? How can I sacrifice myself so that you, you know, so that you find healing or, or that we're able to actually come together where you're not subservient to me, but we're able to listen to each other, you know? Um, so there has to be some love there. And I think that kind of feeds into what your question was then about what are some, you know, what are some takeaways? Um, there was a moment in the conference. I can't remember exactly when it was, but um, it, it might have, it was during one of the sermons and, you know, somebody was talking about um, this being a picture of what, of how things should be. It was an African-American speaker and I just can't remember exactly who it was, but I just kind of had this moment where I just thought, what if this was the church, you know, you know, black, white, Hispanic, Asian together. And we're hearing from many voices, not, um, you know, having, I mean, out of being a white table and we're trying to invite minorities to our table I wonder why they don't want to come when we make them do everything our way. But actually, you know, we're all coming at this together and we're bringing our offerings and we're bringing our perspective and we're all learning from each other. What if this could be the church that emerges? And it was a really good thought, you know, like I, I just felt some joy. It's like, I could just kind of see it developing and then, you know, it went away pretty quickly after that, you know, right. um, but, but it was just kind of a glimpse. And so that was one of my big takeaways, you know, it's like, what if this is something that God's doing and what if this conference isn't just a conference, but it really is a beginning, you know, and of course we've said that a thousand times about conferences, but, but, but that would be a hope and prayer that I would have. Um, you know, I, I think that they were having a, you know, a dialogue, um, with, with, with speakers from, there's some, some pretty provocative things that were said, you know, about, um, from African-American preachers and speakers directly confronting white evangelicals at a conference sponsored by primarily white evangelicals. And, uh, you don't see that a lot, you know, right. you don't, um, right. um, and, and, and people received it, you know, by and large, there was a, there was a welcoming, um, you know, of that critique and, and, uh, and it was pretty strong. And, you know, uh, for my own part, um, you know, speaking about immigrants and refugees, that was something, uh, you know, about people in the margins of people who were here illegally even and how we should minister to them and care for them. That was uh, something that was celebrated and welcomed. And I'm not used to seeing that, you know, it's more of, well, that's controversial. We don't want to get around that, you know, but, um, but that wasn't the perspective there. So, um, and, and there were also, you know, you know, if, um, you know, women were standing and preaching and speaking in front of, you know, 4,000, you know, evangelicals and, you don't see that a lot, you know, uh, women of color, uh, were speaking very strongly and directly. And, uh, I thought that was important and needed, um, you know, especially along these lines and, and these issues. And so, um, it just seems like there was some really, some, some good ground was broken, um, in this that had not been broached before in amongst this tribe of Christianity, you know, conservative evangelicals, which I consider myself one for sure. Um, you know, so, um, those are some of my, of my takeaways. I think if we could keep moving along those lines and keep facilitating these conversations, it would be really, really good. So that it was initiated and led by um, uh, Anglo evangelicals that there was space uh, to consider um, marginalized people that are that include refugees. And that um, women of color were given voice. Those are mm-hmm. those are 
you see is is pretty strong um, uh, positive indicators that that the conversation may well um, be moving in the right direction. Mm-hmm. I mean. <laughs> You know, it wasn't, uh, you know, it was a day and a half. And so, they, they had, you know, they had two sessions for breakouts. And so sure. it could have it could have been more, you know, obviously, but it was a pretty diverse, um, you know, group. And and uh, I do feel like that barriers were coming down, you know, along those lines. And and uh, yeah, just incorporating those thoughts in about how do we, you know, love all people and and not just I mean, there are a lot of things that you go to and I've been to these you have to where, where other people are talked about and they're not in the room, you know, um, or they're not on stage or we don't hear from them, but we're told we need to love them. And it's like, what? but they're not here, you know? And and, in this conference, they were not only there, but they were speaking and they were telling us and they were, you know, telling us that we needed to love them, you know, and grievance was being shared, you know, it was, you haven't loved us and this is how it's affected us and you need to repent. And it was, you know, it was, it was direct and it was strong and it was, it was, I can't speak for everybody there, but it seemed to be welcomed as well. You know? Yeah. So that, that sounds a little bit like the, uh, was it, uh, um, uh, Bishop Tutu's, uh, truth and Mm -hmm. reconciliation commission, you know, uh, right. Right. uh, uh, Certainly stopped short of, of, of all of that, but it, it does seem that, that there is no way, to really come to any kind of reconciliation, one if there isn't space for grievance, mm-hmm. and there isn't space for an acknowledgement of of grievance. So, so right. that does sound that does sound uh, pretty positive. What what would you say um, are are kind of some challenges coming out of attending an event like that? I mean, what what you know, with without maybe just like offering kind of the standard fare. Uh, mm-hmm. That is, you know, some people just aren't going to buy it, and we're still pretty sewed up in identity politics, and yada yada mm-hmm. yada. Constructively, what what do you see as some some room, uh, some specifics that that um, uh, you think a, a group like that, if they were going to offer a follow up event, could hone in on? Mm-hmm. You know, first, um, you know, kind of thinking about two dangers coming out of a conference like that. One is to think that, you know, well, we solved it or we made, you know, you know, wasn't that great. Now on to the next thing, you know, mm-hmm. obviously this is, you know, several, you know, several hundred years old problem, not just that. And this was talked about at the conference, not just that, but even the very foundation of evangelicalism in America is, is intertwined with, you know, you know, racism or racialization and prejudice and, you know, things like that. I mean, that's not what the gospel says, not what the Bible says, but we adapted those views. And so, you know, one conference obviously isn't going to cover it all. Um, So, you know, we shouldn't become, you know, lackadaisical coming out. Um, The other, the other danger that I think uh, arises is, is maybe the desire to kind of mitigate some of the things that were said, because since the conference and, you know, um, Tabidi um, uh, Anuabi, um, I always get his last name wrong, but uh, has written several articles for the Gospel Coalition where he has kind of taken it the next step, and he's he said that you know he said some strong things that uh, about complicity in the past, you know, with white evangelicalism and and a racist you know state and, and society and you know things like that. And there's been a lot of pushback, and so there could be a reaction to say, well, you know, we don't really mean that, or we don't really want to to address those things. We just kind of want to keep it at a personal level. And, you know, and then, you know, the other thing is that once you invite 
to hear from people who we haven't been hearing from or we haven't really been in relationship with the way we should be, at least in the sense of they're going to speak to us. I'm talking as a white evangelical. We have to be open to accepting that they might say some things we don't want to hear. You know, I mean, you can't control the conversation once you invite people into it and then ask them, what do you think? You know, and um, I think that's a danger as well to kind of say, well, you know, now this is being divisive or you've said too much. And now, you know, you might be turning some people off now. So you need to stop saying what you're saying. Um, the good thing that can come from that and the good thing that I think is happening. So since the conference, there's been pushback. You've had you've had some white people say that's too much. And you stop. You've had you've had African-Americans primarily, um, you know, that I've seen even expressing anger, not about the conference, but like stuff starting to come out now that wasn't coming out. And people are saying, oh, this is getting bad. Like, you know, maybe we've opened up a wound or maybe we've you know, maybe we're going too far. And I look at it and say, this is actually what reconciliation looks like, you know, because you know, you're talking about decades and centuries of, of separation and oppression, all these things. And then we start coming together. Well, yeah, we should expect there to be anger expressed. We should expect hard things to be said. And that's actually, that's exactly, I mean, that's what needs to happen for there to be healing instead of this kind of covered over where everything's fine as we hope black people come to our white churches and don't say anything, you know, that's, that's not the solution. Um, so I'm actually encouraged at some of the of some of the conflict that's kind of emerging, or some of the things being said that might not sound pleasant, um, but if we'll listen, and if we'll love one another, and if we'll tell people we hear you, and what you know, what can we do right now? We can't fix the past, but we can, you know, we can try to to um, bring healing in the present and and see things differently. Then that could be opportunity um, for us to actually make progress. And that's what I'm really praying for. Yeah, yeah I find it interesting that um, the things that you described that we need to be cautious on the other side of an event like this uh, in those extremes, they all really still trace back to uh, um, uh, protect, uh, defend uh, the status quo, if you will. I mean, mean, even though um, there could be a tipping of the hat, all of those that you described, one, you know, hey, we've, we've handled this. Mm-hmm. We've handled it insofar as, you know, we still are controlling the conversation, which mm-hmm. is, a, is, a, is a protect. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the other side, you know, the idea that we might, you know, be a little bit offended at what might be said in honesty is also um, uh, a, uh, a response to defending my ground. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so I think when you highlighted that that was kind of the, 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 the core that's at work in an issue like this, that uh, until we kind of come to terms with um, some means of accountability for, you know, defaulting there, uh, we're always going to uh, stumble along the way. But if we can forego the need for that, then... Um, you know, put our big boy pants on, if you will, and 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 let's let's own the music. That's what was intriguing about your reference to Tabidi's. I, I read the piece, uh, one of the pieces. I think maybe you linked to it uh, and sent it to me. Mm-hmm. But um, it it was it, it was something that really uh, folks have a hard time today with, when you know we exclusively think about this as an individual act, mm-hmm. and so when you know I think of the complaint or the grievance, and I associate that with uh, a, a particular set of actions, and I've not committed any of those, 
then my complaint is is that that wasn't me, that was somebody else. Mm-hmm. And if there's something I've learned being on the city council in Tuttle is that I have a, a constantly prodding constituent who, when I remark that um, the circumstances that lie at the heart of the complaint are like historical. They, in other words, they're patterns that have just been continued and we're trying to correct those. Mm-hmm. Um, her response is, that's what they all say. So mm-hmm. at that particular point, we have to, we have to kind of stop it somewhere and say, mm-hmm. okay. And I think that's what Tabidi was really arguing for. Okay. So like you didn't own slice, fine. Mm-hmm. But if you could at least sincerely acknowledge that up your family tree, there were those who participated in it and, and as such left you where you are today at advantage and others at a disadvantage, it would be proper for you to acknowledge that uh, connection. Mm-hmm. And, and, well, I, and you and I both know that you start trotting that line of thinking out and mm-hmm. you talk about met with resistance. Yeah. Um, that's mild. Well, and it's, and it's really interesting too because when I was younger, and you maybe remember this as well, and these things will be talked about, the response would always be, well, I didn't own slaves. That was 100 years ago, or that was 125 years ago. And so why are you talking about this now? And so now when you talk about the events of the 1950s and 60s, it's the same response. Well, yes, exactly. that, that might have been my parents, but it wasn't me. It wasn't me. And so we keep on, you know, when, whatever anyone brings up about anything, the response of the person who's protecting their way of life is always, but I didn't do that. Well, okay, then will you help us correct it from those who did, you know, we still are living in the results of that. And it's a constant deflection. We saying it's not a problem or it's not a problem that I can do anything about. So why are you talking to me about it? Yeah. And maybe they aren't talking to you about it. Maybe they're just talking about it. Right. <laughs> and, right. and, and you, and you're choosing to get offended because, because an African-American pastor is pointing out a clear historic situation. And now you, and now you take offense claiming you had nothing to do with it. Right. Well, any, any psychologist would say that there's a whole lot of stuff going on. A whole there, lot of stuff you know? going on. Um, and so, I, I mean, I would, I would just ask, you know, the white pastor or white Southern Baptist who's getting offended by these things. Why are you personally offended? You know, exactly. uh, I mean, this is their experience. Do they have to run their experience through you and only say the things that you approve of? Yeah. What kind of dumb, what kind of dominion is that? I mean, it's just, it, yeah. it, it becomes ridiculous. If we just step back from it for a second, no, you know, no doubt. Um, so, so what's, um, what's another, what's another, um, uh, point at which you think, um, there's, uh, a, um, a space was opened up to say this specific. So if, if we could say at this particular moment, what we've identified is, is, is there's, there's in, in, in and among this particular group of Southern white evangelicals, there seems to be at least energy to accept and hear grievances, which mm-hmm. is definitely uh, on the road to reconciliation. Um, what's a, what's another what's another identifiable um, uh, takeaway where you could say, you know, I, I think the space was opened up, and this would be another component in that in that process. Mm-hmm. And I think it's related because I because I because I think that you have to have this to to accept and hear grievances, but. But in an active sense, this is something that I'm constantly talking about, but just the growing desire to truly love one another, you know, to, to truly value each other and to say you have, you know, you have gifts and, you know, 
from your background, from the way God made you, from your culture, from your family, from your experiences, you know, you have these things that we need and we're not complete without you, you know, and, and, uh, you know, hopefully you'll feel the same way about us, you know, as we're in the body of Christ. And I'm seeing that grow more than just, Hey, you know, we need to have some diversity and we need some, some black people and some Hispanic people here so that we can show we're not racist. That's not what people overtly think, but it's just, you know, sometimes it comes across that way because it's, it's kind of mechanistic in the sense of let's have some diversity. But what I'm seeing grow more is just a real treasuring of, of, you know, people from different backgrounds. I saw a lot of that. Um, there were a lot of hugs. There were a lot of, hey, I follow you on Twitter and, you know, or I see what you say and you get to meet people and thank you for what you're contributing or, you know, I mean, I got that as I was, as I was walking around and, and, and people saw my name tag or they met me in a, you know, you know, it, you know, in a meeting and I speak a lot about immigrants and refugees and, and, um, you know, and I, I mean, I'm a white guy, but, but just, being in a conversation with people who are, who are working through these issues and valuing one another, you know, um, I think is really important. And that to me is a picture of the church is that we come from a lot of different backgrounds, a lot of different perspectives, but we love one another. So therefore we're willing to hear each other, even if hard things are said, and then we're willing to kind of take it up and say, well, what can I do about that? Like, I don't, I'm not going to get offended because you said this, I care about you. Therefore, I want to try to relieve your burden or I want to try to minister with you or let's address this together, you know, that type of thing. So there was a lot of that type of spirit, um, which is different than, you know, like, I mean, and you and I both being Southern Baptist pastors have been in meetings and somebody would say something and the room gets icy cold and you just kind of go, Oh no, you know, what's going to happen next. And everybody kind of stiffens up and, and then, you know, the moderator or whatever will say, okay, next question. And like, just to get out of it. And that wasn't, the case here, hard things were said and people kind of pressed in and say, well, explain that. What do you mean by that? Or how can we address that? You know? And, um, so that to me positions us for actually actively loving each other and going forward in, in the power of the love of the gospel, you know, that, that comes from Christ, which is really, that would, that would be a great thing. So. Yeah. I think, I think that's interesting. Um, I, I, I do think that you have, have hit on a real important one. I mean, if we're going to view the church as a, as a signpost uh, of the kingdom, uh, mm-hmm. but not the kingdom, and we're going to indicate in some way that um, uh, what the kingdom will look like is at least contained in our feeble attempts at such. Then you know, loving one another certainly is it. I, it you, you brought to mind a uh, a tweet I saw yesterday by uh, Landrum Level, who who uh, referenced uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. Mm-hmm. He said that the the love of strangers is declared thirty six times in the Hebrew scriptures, right. as opposed to the love of neighbor mentioned only once. Right, and and I think that while you're framing this in that you know we could love each other, we've we talked about that. You were talking about in the context of church, and immediately someone's going to think local church, but you're actually uh, expanding that to to think of the Christian church in particular mm-hmm. this particular branch we've been talking about, but. I think it's probably safe to say that most people uh, view even those who they don't normally spend a good bit of time with and intersect with that they're strangers. And so if if we if we're going to heed the call all the way around, if indeed uh, the Hebrew scriptures point more to um, a call to love strangers, we have to confess that if we've not grown up in a multi ethnic kind of context, if we've if we've kind of been siloed. Everybody else is a stranger. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the posture of loving one another is rooted in a love for someone who's stranger to us. 
Mm-hmm. And and so I, I think that I think that, that that just simply gives weight to what you're describing because um, most of the time how we how I've heard uh, Christian folks even you know longstanding solid lay leaders uh, um, sort of isolate those passages as <clears throat> if it's only how we treat those in the church. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, you say you know. And Leviticus 19 is a really is a really good place to look for this because you know, and this is what Jesus is referring to in the um, in the greatest commandment when he says to love your neighbor as yourself. Um, in Leviticus 19, it, you know, your neighbor is 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 de- defined as the foreigner, right? And so that's the the parable that Jesus tells. Um, you know, when he's asked the question, "Who is my neighbor?" Right? We try to qualify and we try to to limit who our neighbor is. And then Jesus expands it to say, well, who was the neighbor to the man in need? And it's not even you, it's the Samaritan, you know? And so he busts out all the categories and, and requires us to consider the other, not just as someone that we should love, but as someone who God uses to love us, you know? <laughs> so we have to not just love the other, but we have to receive love from the other. And that's where God, and that's where the kingdom is, you know? Um, and so, that's that's hard for people who are always in the culturally dominant position as white evangelicals have been in our own mind anyway, even if we aren't in our society and, and, and we feel threatened because we're not in our society. So we want to rearrange politics and everything else so we can regain that dominant position. But in our even if we lose it in our culture, we still carry that in our own mind that we are the dominant culture. And um, yes. but yet following Jesus means that we we have to bow the knee and wash feet and yes. love and be and be loved yes. by others. And, that's and, sometimes even harder than loving the other yeah. is to be loved, you know? Right. And we have to do so without harboring an internal sense that, you know, I'm doing this because I'm supposed to, not because I love you. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and that, that's the other side that I think, you know, uh, is at work that mm-hmm. because we tend to take these matters up uh, as legalism, we don't yeah. realize that they're actually, we're actually set free from that in the gospel. Right. So, Which, yeah. yeah. Which leads to the final, so the final sermon of of the conference, and it was the one that I wasn't crazy about, and um, it's it was John Piper's message. Um, and I'll go ahead, and you didn't ask me about it, but but I'll mention it because I think it, I think he took the approach that you're talking about, where he spent the vast majority of his message talking about the glory of Christ being manifested and God giving the nations to Jesus, which we all agree that the gospel's for all nations and that God gives the nations as an inheritance to Christ. But so much of what I heard, and maybe I missed some parts, I listened to the whole thing, but I haven't listened again, so I'm I'm not trying to quote it, and there might be some parts that I get wrong, but the impression, okay? Mm -hmm. The impression that I got was that we should pursue racial reconciliation for God's glory because this is how God set up that that the nations would be given to to Christ as an inheritance, proving that he wasn't a tribal deity, but he's the Lord over all. And that's fine, but it moves... it moves the impetus away from love, sacrificial love as manifested on the cross. We're compelled by the love of Christ and it moves it to the idea of eternal decree that this is how God set it up. Therefore we should pursue it because it's what God wants and we need to do what God wants. And that's good. We need to obey God. We need to live for his glory. I agree. But if, if the motivation isn't truly the love of God for those he created um, as, as you know, that's what Paul tells us. I'm compelled. I'm constrained. I'm hemmed in. By the love of Christ, because Christ died for all, 
um, and therefore all died, you know, in Second Corinthians five. Then, then I think we quickly wear out, and we just look for rules to navigate all this, and it doesn't have. We don't end up being a blessing to others. We just start doing it because we're supposed to. Does that make sense? Yeah, I don't think that First Corinthians thirteen starts out with um, this is the way love's supposed to look. Paul just basically says, like, if I'm if I'm engaging mm-hmm. other people in these ways, and I don't have love for them. Mm-hmm. In other words, I think it's safely it safely could be um, translated. If I'm just doing these things because I'm supposed to, but I don't have love, mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And so and so I think that you know the the uh, even though we've we've kind of missed the point and made that you know you know a, a wedding chapter, which it's clearly not mm-hmm. in the text. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you're absolutely right. I think that we we uh, again we make a new legalism out of these perceptions of what we must do. And of course the problem is, is the betrayal is, is that really what we know is that um, we don't, how do I say, um, the gospel narrative is that God did it. And mm-hmm. and so anytime I'm going to, you know, take it upon myself to execute that for God, it's too easy to make it a new legalism, mm-hmm. and thereby miss the very heart of God. So I think you, I th- I think you're right. And I didn't hear the sermon, mm-hmm. um, but you know there there is definitely a uh, um, you know uh, a, a rub. I think you and know, I've kind of interacted a little bit about this. You know, there's a little bit of rub trying to ascertain exactly what was going on in Luther's theology of the cross over against the theology of glory. And, right. and, and I think in this case, is, there might be at least some illustration here that the, the, the dangerous uh, trail to, to tread down is, is that, you know, I'm doing this for God and I really don't care about people. And mm. uh, there's already enough of that feeling out there. Yeah. And, and I want to be absolutely clear that I'm not at all saying that, that John Piper doesn't think we should love people. You know, I mean, obviously, you know, I, I wouldn't say that. I'm, I'm just saying that when you take the approach that he did, which isn't wrong, but but that's the way you come at it, you very quickly can end up, and maybe this isn't his intention, but the hearer can quickly say, well, okay, well, how is this supposed to work out then? And once you start asking that question, then you start asking the question, well, who's my neighbor? You know, and 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 so what am I supposed to do? And, and what are the rules? And then you're trying to protect yourself, you know? Um, even though you're saying you're doing this for God's glory, which is what he was calling us to do, and I agree with, I think there has to be the element of of the sacrificial love of God poured out from the cross for sinners, because that is that in and of itself is a really important aspect of who God is, you know, and and, and we're supposed to be captured by that and our hearts broken as well. So, yeah, point taken. I, I don't you know, whoever listens will have to go listen and draw their own conclusions. I, I think the point you're making, though, is clear. How we say mm-hmm. what we're going to say is important. Right. And and there is a way to say something that clearly causes pause to go, you know, what are the implications of that? Mm. I mean, and I think I think that's discernment. I don't think that's like uh, necessarily just arbitrary criticism. I mean, if if we're not moved uh, in in our uh, response to take up. Uh, the habit and practice of Jesus, then either one, that's not been communicated, it's not been communicated clearly. And, and again, I, listen, I, I get misunderstood week in and week out, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I'm going to say that a good bit of that's probably on me, and that's what I'm saying. If that, mm-hmm. I, I get, we, we have to be careful how we say, which actually goes back to, you know, not anybody, uh, as as we've kind of talked about this, not really anybody's willing, going to willing, willingly look you in the eye and go, um, you know what? I don't care what anybody says. I'm I'm a racist. I'm always going to be a racist. And I don't care what you what you like. You know, and, and so um, when their response though is the default to um, protect and defend, then how you say what you're going to say is like you said is going to be a is going to be a projection of an inner situation. Mm-hmm. So so I I, th- I think I think we ought to always uh, maybe we, what we we should do is say that we ought to be very discerning. Uh, particularly mm-hmm. discerning how we're going to say what we're going to say. Yeah. And what I think about, you know, as far as the takeaway from a conference like this is what I believe is what's absolutely needed to solve the racial problem, the history, the division, the the continuing, you know, all of the things that we're continuing to deal with. What I think is needed is the sacrificial love of God displayed in the cross of Christ where we die to ourselves and we live for God and we live for others, laying our lives down for them, considering our, you know, others better than ourselves. Philippians two, that whole passage, Philippians two, one through 11, if you receive anything from Christ, any comfort from his love, any comfort from the spirit that make my joy complete being, being like-minded, being one in spirit and purpose, considering others better than yourselves. And that's saying if we have anything for Jesus at all, anything from the Holy spirit, then the response should be that we look at our neighbor and we say, I care more about you than I care about me. And he and he's not saying there, if you receive anything from Jesus, then your whole focus should be the glory of God and whatever you know God wants. He actually brings the neighbor into the equation right there, just like Jesus does in John 15 and John 17 as well, you know, where he's, you know, saying that as the fathers love me, so have I loved you, you know, now love one another. And so bringing the other and the neighbor into the love of the Trinity is actually something that Jesus does. And so that has to happen for there to be a solution here. And I think that's my takeaway from the conference and, and what I would hope and yeah. pray for, you know. And I, and I think the outworking of that gets, you know, gets has a, has a reference in in 1 John and not to, you know, mm-hmm. say okay, I'm one up and you here, but I mean when when John clearly writes in, uh, that uh, you can't say you love a god you can't see when you yeah. when you don't love someone you can see. I mean I mean, it does become a material reality. It can't just be this sort of uh, mm-hmm. theoretic. It has to have an on-the-ground manifestation. And so, right. so the way you manifest the sacrificial love of God is in your own love toward another. Be sacrificial. So, yeah, yeah. I get what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. And then, and then God is glorified through that because how does the world know that the Father sent the Son by how we love one another? It's like if you go after it, you know, just— you know, clearly if that's your goal, you often end up missing it because you end up establishing yourself, right. you know, you know, not on purpose. But if you truly lay down your life for God and for others, then God ends up being glorified by that. It's not something we can control or lay our hands on. That gets into Luther's theology of the cross, the theology of glory, you know, which sure. you mentioned before. Sure. So. And, then, and, and of course, I think the consequence of just to help make the connection clear that I think you and I are driving at is, is this, is that when we say then God gets the glory is because then someone looks at that particular love sacrificially for another and they say that's not normal. What right. provokes that? And then you get right. to tell the story. So, you know, at that particular, you know, when when that takes place, it, it's like you said, the consequence is if, if, you, get, if you get the order out of whack, mm-hmm. um, it, 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 you can communicate something entirely different. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, but you know, but then well, I'm going to engage in you know in racial reconciliation to bring God glory, and then the person who who hears that just goes, oh, okay, right. not because you love me, not because you love me, right? Yeah, but just well, okay, I agree, God should get glory, so let's all right, let's try, you know, right, right, and, then, right. and then and then things right. run out of steam pretty quickly, right, you know? right, right. Um, so. Well, man, Alan, this is this has been this has been really good, and, and I, I I know I think uh, you can clarify this for us, uh, but I, I believe all of those are available. I'll, I'll get the link, but I b- believe those messages, or at least mm-hmm. a good bit of them, are online available for anyone to listen to. So I've I've seen a number of tweets uh, um, and reposts about wow how how good many of them, if not all of them, were, mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. so. That would give our listener maybe a, uh, an encouragement to go back and listen and then maybe kind of check out what's been said here and see if they derive from those the same thing. I mean, obviously, they're not going to get the breakouts. They're not going to get some of the hallway conversations. But right. if they want to kind of see what was what the conference was like, they can get a feel for uh, what you describe by listening to the various messages. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and I mean, I mean before we go, just to be clear, I mean, I definitely – think we should live for God's glory. And I think that, you know, scripture is clear on that. It's just how, how, what is God really glorified by, you know? Um, and, and how do we do that? And and that's where the cross comes in and, you know, yeah, you know, yeah. love for neighbor, yeah. but yeah, those, uh, you know, those messages I've actually, I have a great data plan with my Verizon. So I have unlimited data again. And so, um, you know, they're video messages, but I've been playing them in the cars. I've been on a road trip and listening and, and everything. So I definitely highly recommend it. It's, it's a good conference. Perfect. Well, Alan, I hope you have safe travels, and I know your family looks forward to you being back home after you get uh, your responsibilities for the week taken care of. So thanks for taking your time out to uh, chat today. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Enjoyed it. Hey, as always, I want to thank you for listening. Again, that was Alan Cross. And um, if you're interested, uh, I'll also have a link uh, not only to uh, the talks, if I can find them, uh, but also... Uh, a link to uh, Alan's book, When Heaven and Earth Collide. Uh, it's interesting that in the years since uh, that's been published, how uh, a lot of the themes and the content actually have shown up with more illustration than when Alan first published the book. Uh, it is a book on uh, s- the f- uh, southern forms of Christianity in the United States and how some of the things that we see now are actually a result of an accommodation to culture rather than uh, the challenge of the gospel to culture. So uh, just uh, hope you'll check that out and uh, support Alan in uh, the work that he does. Uh, I can't end without, again, asking you to do me a favor. Help help us get found. Uh, give us a review. Leave a, a rating there in iTunes. Um, it, it does help us get found. And I've got some other podcasts on the way. Summer's going to be busy. They'll be hit and miss, but uh, certainly you'll understand. But I always want to thank you for listening. And until next time, this has been Todd Littleton with Pathological, the podcast for the pastor theologian. Peace. Peace.